Gilmore here. This is the Gilmore Gang. Uh, I'm uh, joined today by uh, a motley crew. Uh, ah! Just because we all need haircuts. Excuse me, but uh, there's, there's, there's someone in your background. Well, he's gone. Oh, did you? Did the, 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 the orange guy with the hair made a brief appearance when oh. you said motley crew. Just at the moment you said motley crew. He's made he's made uh, some interesting appearances in the last twenty four hours, including one where he described uh, uh, the situation that the uh, virus is just going to go away. Again, yes. No, I mean completely. Yes. Well, he said that he said that before. He's come back to it. Miracle. That was, that was, that was one of his early predictions. Yes, but this one is different now. Okay. Uh, How so? Well, I don't know. I'm. Uh, it's reminiscent for me of uh, my new theory, which is that. Uh, well, let's do the introductions first. Sure. Uh, so, uh, Michael Markman uh, from uh, the Seattle Northwest, correct? Correct. Uh, Frank Radis from the London Northwest. Uh, south, east, <laughs> southwest, southwest. Thank you. Uh, let's go to uh, Keith here, who's luckily uh, muted, uh, so we didn't get to hear whatever he just said. Is uh, in Palo Alto. What did you say, to, uh, Keith? I uh, said that a man who lives in Kensington never wants to be confused with a man who lives in Kensal Green. Wow. Southeast. We are so lucky to have West Side. Southeast. I don't know what that means. I mean, literally any of it. You're talking about two localities on the British Isles, correct? Kensal Green is where I used to live before I moved to Palo Alto. And, um, and it's kind of like, you know, um, uh, rock, rock stars used to live there. They were up and coming. Virgin Records Studios right there. But it's kind of a, you know, let's call it a funky neighborhood. Kensington, on the other hand, is where the Queen's family hang out. <laughs> it's, it's, it's also uh, where Mick Jagger has a home very close to me, and uh, that's where the studio for uh, Queen, not the Queen, was. <laughs> what studio is, is the Queen? Uh, Queen, Queen. That was it's called Freddie Mercury has a, uh, has a house and a studio a walking distance from where I live. Mama just killed a man. Listen, speaking of dead stars. Uh, excuse me. Uh, we've got uh, Brent Leary uh, from uh, the uh, Atlanta, Georgia area, correct? I thought you were going to say, speaking of dead stars, and then, you know, <laughs> I wasn't really looking forward to that. Uh, but I, I know where Frank was going because Little Richard, we have to talk about that. Just yeah, there you go. I think. There you yeah. go. Wham, bam, etc. Thank you, ma'am. No, wop, bop, a loop, up. Oh, thank you. Long, tall <laughs> Sally, built for speed. <laughs> okay, and then uh, rounding out the crew, C-R-U-E, is Dennis Pombriant from the uh, Atlantic Northeast. Who, who I understand uh, is now a fan of Bosch. Slow down. Slow down. Yes. <laughs> I want to hear a dentist. I, I, first of all, I just want to congratulate you, Steve. This is the only major 
talk show that has not had to reformat because of the quarantine. <laughs> right. No, the quarantine. I hope you're getting good royalties on this format. Yeah. About the same as we've been getting all along. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, Frank, it's yours. No, I was going to say, uh, welcome to the world of TV, Dennis. Well, you know, I it, yeah. Thank you, thank you. It's 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 very uh, it's very interesting. It might even be entertaining if I stick around long enough. Um, last time I watched uh, TV so much, uh, I think Romper Room was was my mainstay. Yeah. After you're done with that, go go check out a show called The Good Fight. It's oh, yeah, indeed. But Christine Baranski. Yeah. yeah, it yeah. it's brilliant. It you know it's it's really good. It uh, I've seen a few episodes. It's the spinoff from The Good Wife, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. See, th this only looks naive. <laughs> <laughs> Could have fooled us. I was, I was getting ready to say, if you haven't watched a TV show since like then, you might want to start off with something like Maud, or you know. <laughs> Yeah, Seinfeld. Seinfeld is a good one to start fresh, with. Fresh, fresh, fresh prints, not bad. <laughs> yeah, all that stuff. All that stuff. No, geez. Seinfeld, we saw, and uh, what was that? HBO or Netflix? It was a Netflix. How, how was that? It, it, it's surprisingly good. I got to watch that. Yeah, we had watched it as an antidote to a Zoom comedy club <laughs> <laughs> that. Tina had been referred into, uh, nice. and of course, the main rule is never sit in the front row of a comedy club. Well, in a Zoom comedy club, you're all in the front row, <laughs> including the quote act. Yeah, it was it was really interesting. But so I I saw the uh, Seinfeld thing in the distance as the uh, reverberations faded from the club. And so we went to see how the professionals do it. And he did a pretty good job. You know, that the idea of, a, I mean, just so much stuff is on Zoom and, and so many people are trying to do things differently in the, in the world of, of entertainment. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's a TV channel here that's doing a Zoom uh, scripted uh, drama. Um, and which, uh, which is an interesting concept. Uh, it's, and I think you're going to see more of that. I actually think that a show like the chase would be a great show to do on zoom. What's the chase? So it's a, it's a game show here in the UK and, uh, it's, it's, a it's, it's a pretty decent, it's basically a pub quiz. Keith, you know that show, don't you? Tell me what it's called again. The chase. I don't know it. No, uh, it's very, it's 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 very good. Stalin-esque uh, pro, uh, propaganda channel. So keep exactly. <laughs> but uh, I think the idea of talking about um, a little Richard it makes more sense than talking about some uh, this some stupid show in the UK. If only we had the ability to just say what we wanted. No, what I think we should do is all six of us should guess without him telling us what the chase actually does. Well, that was kind of what I was doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you were way off. <laughs> but I didn't guess. When I heard game, I, uh, I, I did not regret not knowing what it was. If it's level four, it's basically 
sexist men trying to get laid and either failing or succeeding. Because Channel 4 is very edgy. Like, they have like half the shows on? <laughs> Channel 4 has a naked, naked dating game where the, the victim is inside a perspex tube which comes up inch by inch. And as it rises, you see the body inside the tube. And uh, you have to decide whether you want to date the person only based on the amount of their body that's so far been exposed. That's Channel 4. So well, now there's there's also one on Channel Four where the girl has to decide which guy's got a cardboard box around him, and has to decide by opening the front of the cardboard box whether or not he's he's naked or not, and if she picks the naked one, she has to describe what she sees. That's Channel Four. <laughs> yeah. Hey Dennis, well, don't you miss TV four? now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who owns Channel 4? Is it Murdoch or Berlusconi? It's neither. It's meant to be the left-wing, liberal, kind of, it's all out there channel. Yeah. But well, apparently it is all out there. But what does this have to do with either Hillary as vice president or uh, uh, Little Richard? I don't know. I got Frank shone a light called The Chase in my eyes and I went up on a tangent. I apologize. Yeah, and so Frank, this is your last opportunity to actually finish your thought about Little Richard. Uh, he uh, not only influenced me as a guitar player and a singer and a rock and roller, he influenced every single person that I worked with in the 60s and 70s in Washington. And so today when the announcement came up, uh, everybody's feed, those people who are on this, there's a, there's a site that I follow on Facebook called Washington DC musicians of the sixties and seventies, uh, which has a couple of thousand people on it. And it went crazy, uh, because, you know, all, all of us, uh, felt really strongly that he was the greatest. He was, he was the true King. Well, he built himself as the undisputed King and queen of rock and roll. And he was that. That was a religious thing, right? Uh, I, I, first, I first saw a notice from a 20-something uh, British guy who comes from the Lake Country. And he, uh, he's a performer, um, a, a DJ, uh, a musician, builds himself as Father Funk. And it's just uh, astonishing to me that someone from that place and that time is also uh, someone who is just vastly influenced by Little Richard. It's not just the people who came up, you know, at the at the height of Richard's career, but it, it just reverberates through the years. I don't I don't think there's a uh, a rock and roll musician that doesn't play a Little Richard song, whether they know it's a Little Richard song or not. I really think that uh, that his music was so pervasive, uh, and I think it's really obvious to those of us who play, and probably to even people who don't that uh, just the style of music that he played was so easy to play, yet so important. I, I mean, yeah, he, certainly, uh, he certainly had a lot to do with what the Beatles ended up doing. Absolutely, Paul is, uh, Paul is just borrowed a great deal from, from Little Richard. There's a story about uh, Little Richard's relationship with John Lennon. Um, a friend of mine, Liz Derringer, I know you know Liz, Steve, uh, uh, has a, there's a photograph of her uh, on this site today uh, where Little Richard had mentioned to her, she had asked him, uh, you know, 
how, what was your relationship with John Lennon like? And he said, he was wild. I was wild. We were wild together. So I, you know, it's like, uh, they, they, they influenced each other, but clearly he influenced John Lennon. He was also influential, not only as a musician, but just as a, uh, a modern media presence persona. He had this uh, ability to project an outrageous persona and bring the audience in on the gag with him. Um, he, he winked at what he was doing all the time. So, uh, you, you know, you, you could enjoy him uh, with a postmodern irony or you could just go in and lap it up directly. Brent, what do you think? Well, being a, a huge fan of Prince, there's some obvious uh, similarities there in a number of ways, not just the music, but the dress, <laughs> the androgyny. Uh, and I have actually kind of a little personal story. Um, one of my best friends growing up, his father uh, was from Milledgeville, Georgia. And he actually taught uh, little Richard, They're, they weren't that far apart in age, but he had just graduated. And he actually taught little Richard, I think one or two years in Milledgeville. And what did he teach? Uh, well, I, I don't think he taught him about the, you know, the dressing <laughs> aspects of, of his life. I don't think he taught him how to play the guitar. I think he was like arithmetic. Mm. Well, you can't play music without some understanding of rhythm. Rhythm is, is mathematic, uh, mathematical. So, Got good on him. Dennis, any <laughs> thoughts? Um, you know, Little Richard's one of these people who's been, you know, whose presence is woven through my life, but it, uh, you know, I am not a musician and it never really uh, made an impact on me. So just before the show started, I was reading the, the obit in the New York Times. And like so many um, time, so many situations, uh, it's only once they're gone and you read the obit that you find out about their history and about everything that they've done and meant to uh, society. So I don't have anything to add to any of this, although and I bet any one of you would have written the obit. You, you, you seem to know so much. I'm too young. You know, my conscious brain only kicks in around the Beatles. And um, he, he definitely preceded and heavily influenced uh, Paul McCartney, especially, I think. Yeah, I think his first, recording was, his first recording was September of 1955. I think that was Tutti Frutti, right? I could be wrong. Yeah, and it, it literally was uh, only a few months later that Elvis walked into Sun Studios and, and uh, recorded That's All Right Mama, which had a, had a definite R&B feel to it. So uh, clearly, uh, uh, Little Richard uh, affected uh, Elvis and uh, also probably had something to do with Elvis's later clothing choices. You know, one of the things that's interesting, you're just making me think, but... The British experience of American popular music was heavily Elvis dominated, and it's probably to do with racism, um, why that was true. Yeah, for, for the longest time in the UK, uh, pop music was white, even though it was influenced by blacks. Uh, and um, it's, it's, I think Little Richard probably just was, um, was kind of, raised out by racism 
um, until he wasn't, which happened later. Well, wasn't the impact of the Beatles uh, location in uh, Liverpool, which was a uh, a, a trading town, uh, you know? Uh, yeah, Liverpool has the allowed them to have uh, uh, access to uh, those R and B records that weren't uh, available anywhere else. You're right. Liverpool has the oldest black population in the UK, dating all the way back to the Triangle slave trade. Um, um, it, it was the port that slavery happened through, and um, it's all—it's got both a, an African uh, origin black population and a very large Caribbean origin black population as, as a result. And black culture in Liverpool was integrated, so Liverpudlians um, are incredibly, unusually generous in their integration. Um, it's kind of interesting to see that. Whereas, say, London is, is you know, fascists could win elections in white areas. Um, Liverpool, never, never. Liverpool was basically um, community socialist. The docks were black and white, Liverpool docks. It's kind of very interesting. You know, the idea that uh, bands like uh, the Animals and the Zombies and the Rolling Stones, for sure, uh, would not have been uh, without that influence. Absolutely not. So there's your three of the uh, three of the British bands that uh, that that was so influenced by black culture that that that's what made them who they were. I don't think any of those three bands were in Liverpool at the time, just, but they sure went there and played. Just to make a joke about that, uh, on the other hand, uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers and the Dave Clark Five had nothing of that influence in them. <laughs> and, and, and of course, Ferry Cross the Mercy was a, Mercy was a huge song for them. And uh, uh, that was the Liverpool waterway, right? Yep. Uh, Brian. Uh, but there's a, but uh, there is a big blues folks. and R&B. There's a big blues and R&B influence strand in in british pop music in the late 60s um they, you know, they, they they definitely tuned into it wherever they heard it from record stores radio or or touring uh, they were they were into american black music in a big way and uh, and and copped as much from it as they could yeah eric clapton was uh was a was seriously influenced as a guitar player by blues there's no doubt about that. All the uh, Yardbird uh, guitar players uh, came from that school. And uh, the Stones obviously were uh, particularly, uh, uh, what was the guy who died? Charlie Watts. No, he's still no, He's the drummer. He's still alive. He's still, he's still with him. Yeah. The blonde guy. Br on. Brian. Uh, Brian Jones. Giant Brian uh, Jones. Brian Jones started the Stones, first of all. And secondly, he was deeply uh, into the whole bl blues uh, ethic. Uh, and only after he uh, uh, was fired from the band did, the, did uh, the other two guys, whose names I can't remember. Oh, yeah, Mick Jagger and uh, Keith. 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 I, I just uh, trying to bring this back uh, out of the uh, 
past into the near present. The, the Stones' performance uh, during the uh, COVID uh, concert, whatever that was called, uh, of You Can't Always Get What You Want was really terrific, I thought. It was. Yeah, it was. I, I the, the, that wonderful photograph. I don't know if you've all seen it of uh, the the four of them standing there with uh, everyone's in a mask except Keith. <laughs> I think it's pretty funny and poignant. Is that the, I thought that was uh, Trump who didn't wear a mask. <laughs> yeah, well, Trump and Keith. <laughs> so uh, my my theory, just to get rid of that one as well, is that uh, anybody seen the movie Harvey? Yeah. James yeah. Stewart? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. With the rabbit? Exactly. Uh, the last frames of the movie show Elwood P. Dowd, which was uh, Jimmy Stewart's character, and uh, uh, walking up a hill. And you've never seen Harvey in the film, except for those last few frames where you see this shimmering outline of a very large eight-foot invisible rabbit. Uh, and I believe that what uh, our president is now doing is he's, uh, he's adopted an invisible friend, uh, Harvey, uh, in order to be able to counteract the invisible enemy by wishing it to, would go away. So if he continues to do that enough, it will? I don't, I don't, know, I don't know how that's going to work out for him. I'm <laughs> I'm hoping that uh, uh, come November that uh, there will not be a lot of convinced Americans, but uh, we'll see. But uh, it's it, it, it just I'm just seeing that little outline there next. I don't to know. I mean, if you if if they haven't jumped off after the suggestion to uh, drink or inject disinfectant or somehow put some ultraviolet lights under your skin and they're still there. I don't know what's going to get them out of there. Yeah, well, I yeah, wouldn't the, expect that they're going to change. I, I'm not really talking about the base. I'm talking about everybody else. Yeah, but that base ain't exactly small and it's not shrinking much. Oh, all yeah. he has to do is, all he has to do is try to get as many people to be, so turned off just not to go vote at all and his hardcore folks are going to vote and then you got this justin amash guy thinking about coming in i mean i'm getting ready for another four <laughs> can't rule uh, it out you can't rule it no. out I, I find the numbers uh the the numbers for the, the la last poll that i saw had men uh, in particular, uh, as a group, being very pro-Trump, whereas women were, I think, 20 points down, uh, being uh, not pro-Trump. Uh, Dennis, what, I'm sure you probably know better. Oh, I saw the same data. I don't, I don't know the exact numbers, but it, it was striking that... Uh, men, uh, he was up 46-44 for men. Yeah, but... You know, he, he doesn't have a majority anywhere. And there was, a, there was an article in the Times this morning about how he's beginning to lose uh, old, old people over 65. Um, he, he, a lot of, it's still- And, and by lose, you mean 
Pardon me? And by lose, you mean he can't find them. Well, you know, that's a very good point. You know, my wife was telling me that uh, something like 90.2% of the people dying from the virus are, are 65 years or older. Unfortunately, most of them are black, so they weren't, they weren't uh, Trump's people. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, I don't know how, how it breaks down, but things don't look good. Things don't look good for him. I'm, I, you know, you got to have the election. I'm not, I'm not declaring victory or anything like that, but um, the, more, the more things add up, the, the, the less he has a, a real chance in November. I, I, there, there are just a lot of things. There was, uh, there was a study out um, of second-term presidents um, going all the way back to, gee, I don't know, at least George Her Herbert Walker Bush or, or before that. Uh, second, people running for re-election uh, who were behind in the polls um, in April, May, usually did not win. Harry Truman was the, the, the big exception, the outlier. So they looked at people like George Herbert Walker Bush, who was down in, in April and May and no, didn't get reelected. And I, I, I don't recall the whole article. You can, but, in his mind, losing in November, uh, he already has a picture in his mind of the upside. You know, like who is, who is former President Trump starting in January uh, in terms of his status in the world, his ability to do deals around the world, his... It's called defendant. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about what's in his head, not what might happen, but what he thinks might happen, which will definitely not be anything. I think he's trying to set himself up as the next Rupert Murdoch. If he gets his friends and all of these people to go out and buy it, this sort of little known media company called Own, uh, and he begins to make uh, some moves into that world. Uh, I think he can see that as a win. Um, I, what I don't understand uh, is how does, how does he not uh, grapple with this horrible economy that the, that the COVID has created it, uh, all around the world, and maybe even worse in America? And then against the fact that the stock market is going up. I mean, that, that's what he'll point at. He'll say, look, see, I'm doing great with the economy. But the reality of that is millions of people are out of work. 33 million, I think, or, or have just recently uh, the total uh, applied for unemployment insurance. Uh, and I mean, those numbers are hard to argue with. Yet, uh, he doesn't seem to be getting hurt by the economy. It's not one of these numbers that keeps floating up in these polls, as far as I can see. The Fed is the Fed, which really. is, dramatically is the one who's keeping this thing up with all the money they're pushing out there. It's also it's also his strategy to uh, spew as much confusion and blame as possible. The economy isn't tanking because of him. It's because of those damn. Democratic governors who are shut down their states. He's trying to get them to open up. He's the big champion for getting the economy running, but he's being thwarted by the evil Democrats and by well, the media. There'll be a lot of dead red state grandmothers um, that prove the opposite. 
I, I, I think you're right. I agree. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of people in this country who are in states that have been lightly touched by this pandemic, who uh, don't have any any um, skin in the game from the perspective of they they haven't lost anybody that they don't know a lot of people who've been sick, things like that. Um, Places that come out too early with and have rising caseloads and rising hospitalizations are going to discover their own mini epidemics, and they're they're going to have that uh, top of mind come November. There's a lot of time between now and November for a lot of different things to happen, and for, from Trump's perspective, a lot of it is not good. Most of it's not good. <laughs> yeah, but see, he doesn't care. I mean, he. His, he only has one objective, and he doesn't care what he has to do or say just to get that done. Once that once that is accomplished, he doesn't care about anything or anybody else. You know, the 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 red state grandmothers. You think he really is going to care about them on November fourth if he wins? If if he wins, what's happening with Trump, and you 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 see this all the time throughout history, is that um, the liar the liar succeeds until he can't support the lie anymore. It's like a Ponzi scheme. And we're very close to a point where, where the, the lie is just not gonna float. There was an article in the New Yorker yesterday, I think, about uh, uh, how, how Trump is, is now apparently be, believing his own BS. Well, he's always, had, he's always had the ability to believe his own BS. That's one of the things, one of the reasons he could lie so well is he just, just accepts it. Oh you know? uh, yeah, but there's there's belief and there's there's this is a different level. Well, right? I, I, that, that's a great article, by the way, Dennis. Uh, and I have to say, I, I haven't always been a big New Yorker reader, other than the cartoons. Uh, but in the last year or so, their their journalism has risen to the top. They're just doing a terrific job. How do you like the Atlantic? Yeah. Yeah. Another great one. So, yeah. uh, Keith, uh, 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 can you uh, resolve this? Uh, we seem to have two uh, competing theories, one of which is it's impossible for him to win, and the other is that uh, we don't know. <laughs> I, I am, um, you know, I think any, anyone that can listen, see, and breathe probably right now if you were forced to put your life savings on an outcome, would vote for him not to win. I am not convinced that that's how it plays out yet. Uh, I saw the Biden um, thing this morning. I don't know if he did it last night or this morning, but Biden did like an appeal for people to join his campaign. Oh my God, was it bad? It, it, it was vacuous. Um, he said, he said, you know, we've got to get rid of Trump. Uh, and then he said, it isn't going to be easy, but I'm going to try. So he, he, he was defensive. He was understated. He, he, was, he said, and of course, it isn't just good enough to win. We've got to do some big things. And um, we, we will do some big things, but he didn't name any big things he planned to do. It was the worst performance I've ever seen. So I'm not convinced that when those two get in the ring together, I think Biden starts to look really bad. Frank, did, anybody, taking it. did anybody uh, experience the uh, Obama? Uh, 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 a couple of statement? Romney, the first Obama Rodney debate. 
No, no, the Obama statement from uh, last night. Yeah, uh, he, he had, he had a clip uh, of him, you know, right. uh, talking and it's another one of these Obama, I'm talking about uh, Trump, but I never say the name. Right, right. It was, it was, a, a, it was a conversation with about 2000 Obama administration uh, alumni. I guess there's, an, there's a sort of a formal association. And uh, he was speaking specifically about uh, what Bill Barr has uh, done in dropping the uh, prosecution of, uh, of Flynn, Michael Flynn. And, uh, you know, my point would be that Obama is, is shaken by that. And it wouldn't surprise me that uh, people like Barack Obama are going to be out there stumping for Biden to an unusual extent. And uh, this is almost going to look like Obama running for a third term. Which, which wouldn't be so horrible. The, I, you know, the, I, I think that um, uh, the other thing, there's a couple of interesting things happening right now. That, the, the Flynn thing was just the biggest bomb uh, from yesterday. But I, I think that one of the things that actually made so much of a point was the Lincoln Project uh, commercial oh, yeah. that ran yes. one time. They, they made a one-time buy to run in Fox. They did not do a big media plan. They made a $5,000 purchase for a one-time spot in Fox, knowing that the audience of one would be there. And that <laughs> created such a controversy and such a stir that I, I actually know a, a whole lot of people in the media uh, who weren't necessarily Republicans that have now joined the Lincoln Project because they feel that that's, a, that's an organization that actually can make a difference. How do you think that you know, uh, you know, with uh, LBJ's uh, Goldwater commercial about, about the atomic blast? Do you, know, do you know what I'm talking oh, about? Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, that, that only ran once, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's a connection. There's a connection. That, that uh, Goldwater spot, or anti-Goldwater spot, was done by Tony Schwartz, uh, a, uh, a, a media guru and uh, producer who had a lot of uh, interesting theories about political advertising. And he is the, is the first one to use this technique of finding out what the decision maker is listening to, what radio station they listen to in their drive time, and making a small media buy, putting by putting the ad on the air, they uh, the, the 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 target thinks everybody's hearing it, because it's on it's you know it doesn't come to them on their telephone, doesn't come to them in their mailbox, it comes to them on the radio. Everyone must be hearing it, and I'm sure Trump must have felt the same way. Everybody is seeing this, but it wasn't. They didn't buy the Fox Network, they bought a, a cable local DC. They spent five thousand dollars. Yeah, so they bought the head end. and and yeah. all they bought was Trump, and they got seventeen million views out of it. Mm. Wow! And, well, and they, those, those, those views are still say, rising. Yes, and right. it sounds like Facebook won't let it run on Facebook, though. They're fundraising against it, and they're recruiting against it. Uh, it's it's uh, it's it's wonderful. The other irony is that there's another guy named Tony Schwartz who is Trump's ghostwriter. So uh, Tony Schwartz is a big name, even though, even though uh, they're, they're not present, kind of like Little Richard. 
the influence continues. Well, I'm curious to know what what everyone thinks about the fact that uh, two members of the inner circle have uh, tested positive for coronavirus. And it, it, to me, it's like, wow, this is a huge thing. And it doesn't seem to be rising to the top in, in uh, almost anywhere. I, am, I, am I wrong or is that just because I'm over here? No, it's a big thing. Uh, you know, epidemiologically, uh, unless, unless you join a convent, and maybe not even then, uh, you're, you're going to get exposed to it. And I think uh, the White House has been playing kind of free and loose with um, precautions. And so it was, I think it was just a matter of time. But more interestingly, I mean, you'll have to wait two weeks to see if anybody gets sick. But more, more interestingly to me, this is um, yet another way I, I had not considered that we could end up with at least a temporary President Pelosi. It's a possibility. Uh, yeah, interesting. I think also, there was also a report I saw this morning of a, uh, a, an outbreak among the Secret Service although they weren't clear about whether those were people who were in, in contact with Trump. So, you know, th th this camel has a way of getting its nose under the tent. Absolutely. Hmm. Uh, I think that was developed in Trump laboratories and was purposefully released into the Secret Service, obviously. With a bat. Yeah. Uh, this is not an official position of the Gilmore gang. <laughs> it, it, but, but, I mean... In one, the ballroom, by the butler. What is clear is that um, this virus, candlestick, uh, this virus lockdown has not really impacted the curve yet enough. So the U.S. curve is is, is plateaued, but it it hasn't started going down, uh, and that's after what are we what six or seven weeks in now. So, but you have, well, to, look it's, it's you have actually, to look at it on a, on a state by state, location by location basis. Yeah. You know, the, the New York Times has a, has a really good page where they break out all the state totals yeah. and show you uh, which ones are coming down, which ones have plateaued, and which ones are still rising. Uh, alarmingly, my own state had a great uh, flattening of the curve and now is coming up again. Well, so, that, but, but that is exactly logical, right? The minute, the minute, the virus hasn't been beaten, it's been slowed down. Right. So it, the minute you do anything to relax the lockdown, of course, it will pick back up again. Uh, how can and, and those gun-toting, uh, those gun-toting uh, people who are trying to keep and reopen these states are going to make a lot of noise and they're a very small minority but i'll tell you it's it those images when they play over here they get a lot of talk there's a lot of discussion about it i real correct me if i'm wrong guys but aren't they like a really tiny minority yet it really looks like a big movement here that is correct that is correct the polling the polling suggests that uh somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of americans don't don't think reopening is a good idea Correct. But however, the CDC estimates that came out, was it this week? I think it was this week, now are saying that the daily infection rate between now and the end of August may rise from 10,000 a day to 200,000 a day. That's right. That's right. 
And it's it's all a, it's all a function of whether or not you you get out of the house and start mingling and you you don't wear a mask and all the rest of that. Michael, I'm looking at uh, that article in the Times right now, and it's pretty evenly divided between uh, states where new cases are increasing, states where they're mostly the same, and states where uh, they're decreasing. And what's scary to me is that where uh, there's an increase, I see multiple states that are going through what looks like a U or a V, where they're, they're they had one peak and they're going towards a second peak. Yes, um, yeah, that's 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 where I am. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, my it's, state it's, is in one of those. We were good. There was also know, an last, article. Last week, there was a, an article in the New Yorker that held up Washington and Seattle as a hero in being able to uh, contain the virus. And just a week later, I'm not so sure anymore. Well, there was another article with a wonderful graph that showed that uh, although the nation as a whole has a declining uh, infection rate. If you subtract out the three biggest hotspots, which are New York, uh, Detroit, and New Orleans, the rate is actually increasing. Yes. In fact, you, all you have to do is take New York out of the equation because their numbers are so high. Their numbers, well, really the Acela corridor from, from Bangor, Maine, or wherever it terminates, all the way down to DC is, is just one big hot zone. Well, in that context, what does Trump's call for opening up do to his reputation? In other words, uh, is he going to be like the Swedish guy, a hero because he's biting the bullet and acknowledging the virus can't be beaten, so you just have to suck it up, and you can't close down society um, in order to not suck it up? Or is he going to be tarnished with deaths because he opened up? Well, but the Swedish guy isn't just opening everything up willy-nilly. There's a strategy to what they're doing in Sweden. And, and Trump is not uh, playing any strategy. I mean, the, the, Swedish, the Swedish strategy is protect the most vulnerable um, and uh, allow the virus to move among the least vulnerable and those least likely to have uh, serious, uh, serious symptoms. And, uh, and that's not what Trump's doing. Trump, Trump is playing a binary game here. Open it up. It's not going to yeah, work you well. Know the, what, one of the problems, as I look at the data, is that uh, we have uh, cases decreasing. What I'm seeing is a freshwater-saltwater divide. States that touch saltwater, by and large, not exclusively, but by and large, are states that are, are coming down. States that touch Freshwater, by and large, Nebraska, Kansas, Kentucky, etc., are cases are places where cases are increasing. Now, it's it's not a perfect it's not a perfect thing because uh, Washington State touches salt water and it's increasing, and uh, cases are decreasing in Michigan, and that's a freshwater state. But if you if you put this on a map, what you're seeing is is relative containment. On, at the saltwater edges, and um, a real opportunity for an explosion in the middle of the country. In fact, even in Washington, you can divide Washington uh, to an eastern and western side, and the saltwater side of Washington has a lower uh, rate of infection than the freshwater side of Washington. Hmm. Is there any correspondence between the water and the economic level and density of the population? 
Oh, quite a bit, quite a bit. I mean, if you look at the intermountain states like Idaho, uh, Montana, the, even through the Dakotas and, and even south, those are states that are very sparsely populated. Uh, most of those states don't have a million people. Um, maybe, maybe Idaho has more than a million. But the point is, the point is that they're, they're sparsely populated and it's hard to uh, spread the virus among us in a sparsely populated place. Nevertheless, it is possible. I mean, you have human beings there that are uh, perfect uh, hosts for the, for the virus. And if they get contaminated, they get contaminated. And what's scary is that the hospital infrastructure in those places is, is not sufficient to support dealing with a, a, a pandemic. And so I think you'll see more date, uh, more death uh, in the freshwater intermountain areas than you will, would see uh, on the coast where heroic measures can be taken. So to, to your point, Dennis, and I think actually I may have read this in a New Yorker story, they were talking about the rural areas of Georgia uh, in particular that um, had, did not have the hospitals uh, to support uh, uh, any kind of uh, outbreak of the virus. And that in fact, they, they couldn't get doctors to go there. They couldn't have, you know, nurses were not going there. It was, it, there were no full-fledged hospitals in a lot of these very rural areas in Georgia. Brent, you can probably talk about this, but the, the people who did get it of the one or two or three or a dozen had to go into this populated areas in order to be treated therefore bringing it more into the populated areas. So there's some of that going on. Well, I, I, I don't want to cut this uh, off because I think it's, uh, you guys have a lot of, uh, of real data to discuss, but I do want to bring it back a little bit to the issue of the election. It seems to me that if uh, uh, what we've talked about in terms of uh, population density, the coasts, et cetera. Uh, this tendency uh, uh, that Trump has uh, to play to the uh, electoral college seems to have a, uh, a relationship to what you guys are talking about. In other words, uh, the you know, states like California and New York, uh, are pretty much isolated from the uh, equation in terms of the electoral college. Oh, they could big electoral votes. I mean, the only re the only way Trump wins in the electoral college is if he snags a couple of big states like Texas, which is teetering for him, uh, like Florida, which he won the last time. Um, but you you can you can rack up an awful lot of Montanas with uh, two senators and one. Uh, congressman for a total of three electoral votes, and you, you go down that middle tier of, of America, and there's a lot of cows out there, and they don't get electoral votes. Okay, so I, I guess I'm wrong, uh, although he is president because of the Electoral College, and uh, the notion of swing states is all about the Electoral College, not about the popular vote. He won, he won uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and a couple other states where I could buy a combined total of about, I think, what, 100,000 votes? So he threaded I thought it was like 71,000. Okay. So he threaded the needle in, in the Electoral College last time. 
Um, and, you know, I was raised Catholic. I believe in miracles, but uh, I don't believe in miracles every day. <laughs> okay, well, we're back to that uh, divide between uh, the people that think uh, that there's no way he's going to win again and then everybody else. So uh, I'll throw this out there. How important is his pick for vice president, Biden's pick for vice president? This yeah. year, around. it seems like this might be a really significant this year. A vice president pick could really make a difference. I, I, I don't know. I, I think, you know, I've, I've seen I've seen analyses that say uh, the most impact would be if he picked a black woman. Um, but vice presidential pick typically don't have much influence on how people vote. Um, so much so much depends on turnout. And having a black woman on the ticket uh, is perhaps going to drive a lot of turnout uh, uh, among black women voters. And they, they're a democratic stalwart. It's hard to win without them. Yeah, I was thinking of just that, the intensity. Because, I mean, Trump's folks, you don't have to do much for them. I mean, they're going to be there. <laughs> There's absolutely no way they're not going to show up for this guy. Uh, so that's why I'm thinking this year, who you know whoever is the pick it it's got to be somebody who uh, gives some gives biden some juice gives them some intensity to work with um because if if he gets somebody who doesn't come with that i don't think they're going to have the the kind of turnout that you're going to need to beat this guy well the, the I, my guess is the biggest the majority if you if we did a poll the majority would be people who would answer the question, do you care who the president of the United States is? The majority would, would, uh, would be um, no. And those are the non-voters, the people who don't show up, um, which is largely poor and um, uh, you know, black, Latino, um, and so on. And young. And, and yep. young. So uh, I don't give a shit is the majority. Trump's people give a shit, and mm -hmm. Biden's people struggle very hard to give a shit about him. Mm -hmm. so well, it, it's well, not by, it's not Biden's people; it's anti-Trump people. I mean, that, well, you know, the, it, the energy, the Trump Trump is creating in, intensity on both sides of the equation. Um, you know, there are people who will crawl over viral infected glass to vote against Trump, mm -hmm. and the know, same I, glass would be crawled over for folks who want to vote for Trump. Well, That's but great. think think about this. If if you're part of the I don't give a shit group, it's a lot easier to be able to say that when you're fat, dumb, and happy, when the unemployment rate's at three and a half percent, when uh, you've got a full belly, and, and you, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's going to be a very different uh, dynamic in November. If you've already got, we lost 20 and a half million jobs in April. We've got we've got about fourteen point seven percent unemployment rate right now. That's such a huge number. It it doesn't look like it's it's going to go down anytime soon. I, I, I don't give a shit is not going to be an option. I would take the other side of that, Dennis. Okay. My experience growing up in England when there was um, Harold Wilson and then there was Edward Heath and uh, roll the clock forward, uh, along comes Margaret Thatcher. My mum was a union organizer. So my mum was solid labor in the 60s. 
by the time Labour disappointed her over and over again, she, en she ended up being a Thatcher voter and um, eventually stopped voting altogether. And, and so, so I think it's actually people who's, who need politicians to deliver something are the ones that are most disappointed when they don't. So it's the poor who become passive, not the rich. Yeah, but in, in a couple of these later, you know, this, at least the last presidential election, and I'm sure there are ones previous to that, the folks whose policies uh, would seem to be more in line with the needs of the people, they didn't vote for. I mean, they didn't vote for, uh, you know, some of the folks who were, you know, looking to raise the minimum wage or, you know, they voted for the guy who, you know, they, they wanted to feel like he's, he's, you know, in there with us. When was the last time Trump was in there with like working people? I mean, it's just ridiculous. Well, but they voted last for week, him. and he wasn't wearing a mask. <laughs> now, <laughs> you know that goes back to uh, the. Uh, there was a great book uh, about I don't know ten or fifteen years ago by a, a social scientist named Thomas Frank. What's the matter with Kansas? Was the title of it, right. and he tried to I, identify the reasons why uh, people, poor people. Um, disaffected people uh, voted against their interests for the GOP. And what he, what he came down to was, was that it wasn't really the policies that those people espoused. It was, it was things, it, it was dog whistles. It was things like, uh, well, you know, we're going to eliminate abortion or we're going to, uh, we're going to do other things that uh, protect the, the white majority. We're, we're going to get tough on, Mexico, we're going to build a border wall. Those are all things that Trump did. And those are the dog whistles that got him elected. Uh, but you gotta, you gotta ask yourself, uh, once bitten, twice shy. I'm on, I will not, uh, I will not be very surprised at all if it's twice bitten. And it's still not shy enough. I mean, it's this guy, he's, he's got now he's got a bigger dog whistle and he is definitely not afraid to blow it. Yeah. And all night long. I mean, if you, if you think the Twitter is bad, oh, I'm just, I don't know what the impact is going to be if there's not, he's not able to have his rallies and, 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 you know, the kind of traditional things that he did to get people all wrapped up. That to me may be the, one of the more interesting aspects of what's going to happen with his campaign is since yeah, he, I think that's he right. might not be able to get out there. I, I think that, uh, I think what's happening to support the idea that uh, Trump may not win is the virus, period. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any other uh, equation that we can count on. I think it's, it's great that we can think of uh, this sort of emerging consensus, uh, what Brent just said about, you know, once, twice bitten, uh, I think that the, this country has a capacity for continuing to be bitten, uh, that, uh, that it's only really going to be brought to, uh, into alignment with uh, another philosophy based on, you know, a crisis, a world war, what we're going through right now, which is a world war uh, against, uh, I mean, fundamentally, I think that the, what the bet is that's being made, and I think it's being made 
reluctantly but uh, and quietly by uh, the Trump administration as well, is a bet on enough uh, time being bought by flattening the curve, not bringing it down, just flattening it, uh, to be able to develop um, treatments that will uh, support uh, the idea of protecting the most vulnerable parts of the population. I think that's the whole game here right now. And I think that Democrats and Republicans are aligned around that scenario. Whether they Study really... the election of 1932. Okay, well, explain, because... Uh, well, two things. Two things. I, think, I think, number one, um, COVID might not be the issue uh, by November for the reason, the reason being that Trump is taking his eye off of it and he's focusing on the economy. And I, I don't think he's got the ability to lift the economy back up to anything close to where it was. This is gonna be an election based on, an, on the economy and it's gonna be a lot of hungry people voting just, just as in 1932. Um, I, I, think, uh, I think in 1932, we had uh, Herbert Hoover running for reelection after four years of basically doing nothing, uh, certainly doing nothing since October of 1929 to uh, ameliorate the, the damage. And uh, the country was ready for change. Uh, being ready and receptive to change uh, means a lot. And I think there's enough time uh, already gone by and there's enough time between now and the election for the electorate to decide, yeah, we, we have to have a change. Well, I think that what's happening here is uh, it's a, a battle with the media. And the media is not going to be convinced uh, for their own economic reasons by any argument uh, that is current about the economy or anything else. That's not what the media is looking for. What they're looking for is an argument that's going to protect them. I mean, I find it surprising, actually, how pervasive the uh, virus has been uh, among uh, the media. I mean, George Stephanopoulos. Uh, I mean, there's just a, a whole Leslie Stahl. I mean, there's just it's extraordinary, and it's it, it, what it really is showing is why Trump doesn't want to test. Uh, is he doesn't want to see the actual data? Because, he doesn't want the numbers to go up. Right. <laughs> he doesn't want the numbers out. Uh, yeah. Want the number. I think. He has said that. I mean, he has literally said that. That's not just surmise. He, 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 you, you, can, you can quote him saying that. He just does not want to see those numbers. That's like that boat. He didn't want those people to come off the boat because he didn't want the numbers to go up. Yeah. That's right. What Michael said earlier is, is, is I think, kind of interesting. When, he, when Michael, you made the point that, um, unlike Sweden, Trump doesn't have a plan. Now, cl clearly, um, he has somehow bought into um, opening up is okay, even though there'll be more debts. Let's assume he's bought into that. Mm -hmm. um, oh, he has. Let's all assume. Let's also say um, whatever we think about that opinion, um, it, 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 it's within the realm of reasonableness for somebody to hold that opinion. That 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 if you can't kill the virus and if Steve's wrong about managing it, then uh, letting everybody get it 
hoping and praying that they become immune once they've had it, which we really don't know. I think we can assume he, that's his plan. That's what he, if, now, un, unlike Sweden, he's no, doing nothing in that plan to protect the vulnerable, nothing. He isn't saying, let's open schools, but let's not let people visit old people's homes. Uh, you know, he, he isn't saying people over 70 with underlying conditions do have to be locked down. He's just saying, broadly speaking, as Michael said, let's open up. So he's an idiot, clearly is an idiot. A lot of people are bound to, it, it reminds me of that time when he said uh, he grabbed women's pussies and working class women were not put off by that. It, it, it's kind of interesting, right? Because why? Because working class women typically uh, are less politically correct and found it funny when he said that, didn't find it offensive uh, because they're not, set, you know, they're not the kind of people we are. We're not, we found it offensive. So I think one of the things um, we have to do if we want to beat him is understand his audience and undermine his ability to influence them, not by being offended, but by engaging with them in the way yeah, that- there, There's a fallacy there, which is that if we understand his audience that we can beat him. Uh, we may understand his audience and still not be able to beat him. True. That's number one. Number two, uh, the, you know, this, uh, even if you look at Sweden and other countries that ha have different strategies, uh, including uh, rigorous and immediate lockdown, like uh, China and uh, South Korea, etc., there's still an undercurrent of can we mitigate uh, the worst aspects of this so that we can bring back the economy. The economy is not going to be brought back by uh, the people who own and run the stores. It's going to be brought back by the customers going into the stores. And if, if they don't go into the stores, the economy is, is going to be taken out. And whatever Trump has to say uh, about blaming everybody but himself, it, it, it doesn't really change the equation in terms of November. So what all I'm saying to you is, if there is some serious science that begins to say that, okay, by uh, a certain month, and it doesn't have to be November, it just needs to be serious science uh, that suggests that they're gonna be able to uh, produce uh, a cocktail of treatments that is going to mitigate uh, the worst aspects of this so that we can begin to uh, recover from the economic crisis that we're in. That is, not only uh, the Democrats' strategy, not only Fauci's strategy, but it, frankly, it's also Trump's strategy. Aren't we already uh, seeing in America that the people are are not, even in those states that are opening up, are not, uh, don't tend to want to go into these stores? Don't tend to, I mean, didn't they open three movie theaters in Texas? Nobody's going into it. I mean, isn't that already... Yeah, the, the economy is not a monolith. People are, are, are not 
are not idiots. Uh, you go into a crowded restaurant, you go into a movie theater, that's one thing. You go into a, uh, a supermarket, dash in and dash out, that's another thing. Uh, you, know, you go into a, uh, a, a lumber store, buy some lumber, there are very few people around. Uh, you know, there are different aspects to the kinds of economic engagement that people will be willing to do. Uh, it, it's and not, I think, I think you, you have to understand or you have to accept the uh, dynamics of, of a democracy. Um, our democracy is a little bit funky with the Electoral College, but uh, the winners in a typical democracy are the people who get one half plus one vote. And this goes back to a point I was making earlier. Um, last time Trump managed to thread the needle uh, in some key Midwestern states, he is behind in I think four out of five of them right now. It doesn't look like he's going to be able to thread that needle. Uh, and uh, we, we simply have to accept the fact that we're not going to we're not going to achieve unanimity in, in the population, uh, in, in the vote. There are people who are going to vote for Trump. They, they are not going to put him over the top this time based on the, the data that I'm looking at. I think that's the default truth. I believe I, I'm, I'm with Dennis. Okay, good. So now what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to force each of you to actually uh, vote. Uh, starting with uh, Brent, do you think that Trump is going to win or lose the election? Do I think so? Uh, I think yeah, it's your opinion. I think there's going to be some way that he he figures it out and he'll win. He won the last okay. time and didn't have and had less three million less than the other person. So I know, but there's a big. Big difference uh, between that election and this one, uh, which is that now we know that he can win. Yeah, I have to wait and see. I'm going. He's going to win. Okay, great. Uh, uh, Frank Rabbis. Lose. Dennis. I think uh, I think he will lose with caveats. The caveats are. If the creek don't rise, if the good Lord's willing, if there ain't no meltdown. And the reason you got to say that is because there is the possibility that he will, he will steal the election. He will, he will shut down democracy. Gerrymandering will, will be worse in some key states than we, we believe. So caveats. That's a little Richard song. Yeah. So <laughs> I'll take that as a, no, he's going to lose. Uh, Keith. I'm, uh, uh, you know, May the 9th, 2020, he's going to lose. Ask me again in three months. No, I'm asking <laughs> you, in three months, what's he going to win? Is he going to win or lose? It, 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 I, I, know, I refuse to uh, answer the question, is uh, he going to lose? So if I have to do it that way, he's going to win. Okay, good. So you and Brent so far. And the last one is uh, Michael Markman. Uh, I'm, I'm also with the, uh, he's going to lose asterisk camp. Um, I, uh, I, don't, I, I don't trust him to uh, have a, an honest election. 
I don't trust uh, Barr to have an honest election. Um, I think that uh, what we saw with uh, dropping the charges against Flynn is just the opening salvo of a long campaign. Uh, it's going to be ruthless. It's going to be unscrupulous. And I am frankly worried about it. But if we had an honest vote, he'll lose. Didn't he put a crony or isn't he trying to put a crony in to run the post office? He already has, yes. A, so, a large donor. So there you got Barr. That uh, takes care of the Justice Department. And there you got this large donor crony into a, the post office that he was trying to shut down anyway uh, in advance of things like New York State going for the mail-in vote because of the, the virus. Uh, I, I can see ducks being lined up. Uh, uh, anyway. There are four states now that have total mail-in votes and have for years. Uh, they are Hawaii, Washington, Oregon, and Colorado. And California, the governor just signed uh, an, an order that California this year, at least on a temporary basis, is going to have a total mail-in vote. What happens to us if there's no post office? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, my vote would be that he's going to lose. Wow. Yeah. And the reason he's going to lose is that there are going to be some uh, potential treatments that gather together into a cocktail. The only, the, the historical uh, precedent for this is uh, how we uh, stopped the AIDS uh, crisis, which was by, not by a vaccine, but by a series of treatments, which added up to protection uh, uh, living with the virus. We're going to have to live with this virus. I, I, uh, agree. I agree with that, Steve, but I got to ask you a question about that. Uh, why doesn't Trump proclaim that he's the one who beat the virus and got the economy back on track? Why isn't he the winner when we get that, uh, that cocktail? Because I don't think that he's going to be, by November, he's going to be the winner about this. This is not a discussion uh, about... Uh, the entire country. It's a discussion about the swing states uh, in the electoral college. Look and, at look at his and, language. You know, you know what what everybody is saying here. If we put all of these opinions together, in this is my opinion, uh, is they're saying that he uh, he has the potential for running the table. He's already done it once. Uh, at versus. Uh, the 2018 election, which is all that was true, and he had uh, a rising economy, at least theoretically, uh, with the stock market, which he still has, theoretically, and uh, and the voters came out and said, no, enough of this. Right, and the but, number one issue for the Democrats then was health care. And if, if healthcare was important two years ago, my goodness, what about now? I mean, he's still well, trying, no, we, we still don't trying have, to get the Supreme Court to invalidate the entire ACA. So, so all I'm saying is, I don't, I'm not looking for uh, you know a magic rabbit here. What I'm suggesting is that there's uh, a, a strong potential for the dynamics of 2018 in the electorate. And if the media aligns with a scenario that isn't about how uh, Biden's out of touch, dot, 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 uh, and instead uh, aligns with what essentially Fauci is saying, which is 
look, we've got some data now that shows that we can mitigate this virus in a, a, a specific population. It's not the answer. If we come up with a couple of other scenarios, uh, for example, the you know the remsevere, I forget what it's. Remsevere. Uh, yeah, uh, it by itself uh, is you know marginal in terms of its impact, but uh, where they had a control group in that study of, uh, uh, you know, the, the control group was people were given a placebo. Now that that study has been effective to the extent that it is effective, Rem, uh, I apologize for not knowing how to pronounce that uh, drug's name, but uh, it now becomes the control group. So as you add did you see this morning's report about how the uh, the Trump administration couldn't manage to deliver the drug to the places that needed it? I mean, they they are so incompetent. They 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 uh, they botched the distribution. They delivered that. By the way, Pence pens delivered empty boxes, pretending they were full. Uh, Saw I that. I think that's been debunked. That was a, that was a comedy routine. Uh, oh, I'm, not sure. I'm not sure. But if that me, box but, was empty, uh, Pence is a really good actor because he made it look like he was lifting some weight. But so, there's but, no, but go he, ahead, Frank. There's no doubt that Kushner, who is running the distribution or the operation that is supposed to be getting stuff in and then distributing out, that story that I, that I think it was in the New York Times just day before yesterday that talked about how uh, he had brought in a bunch of uh, young people with no experience that came from hedge funds and, and they were targeting only people who were cronies of Trump uh, in order to get things done, proved that they couldn't get things done. Just as one more nail in the coffin uh, that, that goes down the road of they couldn't distribute remdesivir. But if, even if they could, going, going to see, Steve's making a, a major point, I think. The, the facts are that drug is for people who are going to survive and it shortens their recovery time by about three days. Yeah. The, the minute someone's on a respirator, they're, going to, they're very likely going to die. So this is a drug that's pre-respirator recovery phase. It is possible there'll be a cocktail like there was with HIV and it is possible that Steve's right, that we'll be able to manage um, as long as somebody doesn't get the respirator stage, we'll be able to manage recovery. Uh, no, the, 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 just to f uh, finish off what I'm trying to uh, express here. Uh, if there's a narrative that the Democrats and the independents can latch onto, Trump's going to lose because the numbers are against him. Whether there's a narrative that's going to be co-opted by Trump, in this case, I think that that's definitely a danger, but you know we've got interesting data coming from, for example, Los Angeles, which uh, has worked around the uh, testing uh, roadblock by just saying, okay, anybody who wants to test, you can get it if you're a resident. So essentially, as the administration throws up its flak, to try and obfuscate or talk about uh, what Michael's talking about in terms of 
you know, we're for the people and, you know, we're doing the best we can. And, you know, subtly, the Democrats aren't going to do any better. Uh, that's a strong argument, but it is mitigated by individual states that are outside of this uh, electoral college swing state issue. If they can band together and create a narrative, which is, yeah, it's imperfect, but at the end of the day, we're going to be able to get through this because there are a certain number of treatments which will emerge in the time that we bought using crushing the curve uh, strategies. That's a narrative that Trump is not going to be able to uh, blow past. He's gonna, there are gonna be too many people who are gonna say to themselves, you know, uh, this makes sense. This is what the scientists are saying. The scientists can continue to go on television regardless of how much uh, Trump is trying to suppress their opinions. And it's just an election, and it's just going to happen on November the 3rd. I, I, I think it could play differently, Steve. Even if the cocktail emerges, tr Trump's basic message right now is um, we, we're going to beat this uh, and open up. So if this remedy emerges, he will certainly take credit for it. Whether people believe him or not is another question, but he will certainly take credit and say, look, we knew this was coming. We knew we were gonna be able to deal with it. I managed the whole thing. These other guys would have left you locked up in your house. Now you're safe, you're not locked up in your house, that was me. Yeah, but that's, that's, a, that's a narrative that is different from the one that I'm suggesting. What the Democrats and people who think that this narrative that I'm talking about has potential, they're going to say that is not what uh, uh, the lockdown was about. Lockdown was about buying the time. Mm -hmm. We bought the time. Now we have it. Uh, it's coming. We think that it's coming. And if you know the red states want to go down this hard road of uh, uh, precipitously unlocking, uh, you know, we hope that, you know, like Sweden, we hope that they don't get burned. But in the meantime, this is a logical narrative that we can deliver people to the polls about. And I believe that that's got uh, is the most substantial shot that we have right now against the fear mongering of the current administration. I, I don't actually agree with that. I, I, my, my I, clearly you don't, but uh, I, I'm just so I'm, let, just, right, I'm just telling you what it is that my opinion is, and I vote for no. Uh, Frank, you had something to say. I was just going to say that it was great how you brought it back around to the beginning with the magic rabbit and the the Harvey reference. That's yeah, but you, you it wasn't. It was what was the phrase that Obama said? You're likable enough, and so it was. <laughs> it was effective, but not that effective. Well, it took a long time for me to get back to it. There, I guess. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, can I say what I was going to say or not? Of course. Well, can I stop you? I don't think so. I what I was going to say is, 
the facts are, if you get this virus and it gets you to the point of respiration, the drug that we, we can't um, say the name of isn't going to have any impact whatsoever on the death rate. None. So opening up or closing down is just a question of timing the death rate, not changing it. And, and um, if that's true, if it's only a question of timing the death rate, not changing it, uh, unless we get a vaccine, that, that can change everything. But unless we get a vaccine, it's just about timing. Then I think Trump is the only person, uh, with Fauci, by the way, who is saying this is all about timing, uh, that there are, people are going to die. That's the truth. We don't have any way to stop them dying. It's funny, my wife was on a workout session with her girlfriends this morning, one of them is a Stanford doctor doing research in, in, um, in the virus. And, and she basically said, we can't cure this. We can't stop people dying. So, okay, so it's not a vaccine. So can you cut to the chase? What's your theory? So the, the, so the fact is, whoever owns the message, the true message, that we as a society have not yet figured out how to defeat this thing, and anyone who gets it is going to suffer whatever symptoms that is likely to happen for them, which we can alleviate, but we can't alter the death rate. It just can't. So um, that's the truth. So I, I, it feels to me as if the Democrats have been very careful not to claim anything different to that because there isn't anything different to that. Trump is kind of running the show. So anything good that happens, he gets credit. Anything bad happens, he doesn't get credit. He gets um, bad stuff. And so it really all depends on whether good things or bad things happen in the next, between now and November. Can I offer an alternative? Please. Um, first of all, um, rem remdesivir uh, was given to some very sick people, and you're right. Uh, it, it in I in I forget what percentage of them it, it reduced the hospitalization rate by about a third. Now, the the way remdesivir works is, without getting into a lot of detail is it prevents replication of the virus. So the earlier you get it, the better off you're gonna be. So remdesivir, in my mind, uh, becomes sort of the equivalent of tam Tamiflu. I was in, on Tamiflu uh, in January, and my flu season lasted two days. I had to take the, the drug for five days, but it was night and day, it was, it was tremendous. So that's one part of the cocktail that Steve's alluding to. The other part that it seems like nobody wants to, to talk about very much is the idea of anti-serum. Everybody's putting their, their biomedical uh, eggs in the basket of a uh, vaccine. Vaccine is nice to have, but um, anti-serum has been around for 100 years. As a matter of fact, I, I wrote an article about this um, in March. The, the very first winner of the Nobel Prize in Medicine won for inventing the diphtheria antitoxin. Uh, it was, a, it was a, an anti-serum that, that uh, helped people convalesce from diphtheria. Prior to that, about half of childhood deaths came from diphtheria. So um, there is the swirling of possible solutions 
that's already out there in the biomedical community. Why we're not seeing more action on, on antiserum, I don't know. Uh, we're accelerating the remdesivir trials. That's a good thing. Um, but as I say, as I said earlier in the conversation, by um, <clears throat> excuse me, by November, I expect this is going to be a referendum on uh, stewardship of the economy. There are going to be I'm, lots and lots of, of hungry, out of work people who are going to be looking for change. I don't, I don't think this is going to be so much about about the virus as it is going to be about the economy. I might add that the uh, over here, the NHS is doing a lot of anti-serum research. That's something that they're talking about. So, uh, you know, I uh, God bless the NI, uh, the uh, the NHS. That's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah. And, and what, all I have to say is is that we're out of time here. But the uh, the bottom line. I think is the actions that were taken by uh, Eric Garcetti uh, and the city of Los Angeles are going to prove to be extremely relevant to the population that needs to get out and vote. Agreed. Okay. California would have gone uh, for Biden anyway. I don't, I not don't. about that. It's not. I'm not talking about California voting in the election. They are not. An electoral college uh, asset. I mean, obviously, right. it, it, they're good numbers for us, but they don't swing the balance. the The reason that Hillary lost the election is because she did not get out a sufficient numbers of people in the Democratic Independent Coalition. If they are going to be brought out, they're going to be brought out as a result of some narrative that suggests that somebody or a president or an administration that is competent uh, has more value than one that does not have competence, which is the one that we have. In order for that narrative to be there, there has to be a logical uh, explanation of why we have to invest in these draconian uh, issues. Uh, I, uh, there, there are, there's, a, I think, only a minority of people who make their minds up based on narratives and policy. And I agree, but the net, the most media people, most people are either going to just be sick of this guy and want him out, or or they're going to be in love with this guy and want him to stay. I agree, and I think that if the people that are sick of him and want him out actually vote, then he's going to be voted out. Yes. Okay. But I, you know. All right. So what it was. Uh, uh, Brent was, uh, yes, he's going to win. Uh, Keith was, yes, he's going to win, correct? Well, because he forced me to... No waffling. Uh, we haven't got time. <laughs> forced me to yes get... Or no. Yes, yes. Okay, so that's two. Any other yeses there? Okay, so nope. in the Gilmore Gang Electoral College, it's one, two, three... Four to two. Yeah, but if you take into account good looks, I think we won. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I want to thank uh, Zoom, without which we wouldn't have endless time to discuss endlessly, because what else are we going to do? Uh, so I appreciate that very much.
Uh, I want to thank uh, Tina Chase Gilmore, our director and producer, without which this would not be happening at all. And uh, she just recorded a, a, a terrific G3 uh, yesterday, which hopefully will be released uh, in the near future as well. So stay tuned for that. So I want to thank uh, Brent Leary. I want to thank Steve Gilmore. Good, nice job. Uh, <laughs> Frank Radis. Thanks. Dennis Pombrand, who's the only one who's actually right on this call. <laughs> Keith Terre, who if he is right, then we have all failed. And uh, it's a possibility. And, uh, and of course, the uh, Mikola Michael Markman uh, person. Uh, thank you, sir. You do it very well. Thank you. Okay. Uh, thanks to everybody who showed up, and especially those who didn't. We'll see you again next time.